Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. I am very happy to be hosting another AMDA on the go session. Our session um, today is our Behavioral and Psychological Symptoms of Dementia Boot Camp. We have some very excited guests who will be joining us um, today to talk about how do we approach with non-pharmacological interventions and strategies, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. I am joined by Tanya Pania, pardon me, Tana Witt, Sharissa Duffy, and Dr. Anthony Nettleman. I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves so that we can get more understanding of what they do and what they've been doing in this uh, field. And I'll start with Sharissa. Hi, my name is uh, Sharissa Duffy. I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I am also the director of clinical affairs at Psych360. Um, I've been working in the mental health field for the past six years, primarily in long-term care, where we see lots of patients with um, dementia, with PPSD. My name is Tana Witt. I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and the senior vice president of operations um, for a large uh, organization that provides uh, mental health care to different types of settings, um, primarily long-term care and acute care. Um, my background started in long-term care, servicing um, patients in that setting um, with a wide range of psychiatric uh, and mental health issues, but also a large population of patients with the behavioral psychological symptoms of dementia. Thank you. Anthony, can you introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Anthony Nettleman. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Ohio. Um, I am also uh, the director of psychological services, uh, and I oversee a team of psychologists and uh, master's level social workers. And uh, we go into long-term care communities and provide uh, mostly uh, counseling services to residents there. Thank you all for being with us today. I uh, This is a, a subject near and dear to my heart. I think it's very important for us um, you know, across the post-acute long-term care continuum to understand how we approach um, our residents and our patients with dementia. So this is a crash course, and I know you guys are going to give us a lot of non-pharmacological interventions in ways to support patients with um, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. 
can we start, you know, I know there's a lot of clinicians who are probably listening, but just high level overview of what behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, what it is. And I'm going to leave that question on the floor and anyone who wants to jump in can just go for it. So when we look at behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, we're really looking at um, what can fit into a few different categories of behaviors. Um, And when assessing patients, we're often looking at when those behaviors occur, where, um, and kind of what category they, they go into. So you have activity disturbances, you also have mood disturbances and psychotic disturbances. Each of those categories can have different symptoms that play in. When we're looking at activity disturbances, um, we're looking at things that affect the patient's activity. So those would be symptoms like agitation, wondering, uh, purposeless hyperactivity, verbal or physical aggressiveness, resisting care, impulsiveness, socially inappropriate behaviors, eating disturbances, sleep problems, and more. Mood disturbances, typically you're looking at um, the the patient's mood. So they're if they're having depression symptoms, anxiety, elation, irritability, mood liability, fluctuations in their mood, that happen frequently. Um, and then in regards to psychotic symptoms or thought um, and perceptual disturbances, looking at patients having delusions, fixed false beliefs, uh, hallucinations, seeing, hearing things that are not present, um, and or paranoia. Let me ask, can you tell us um, what are the differences that we may see with um, behaviors and psychological symptoms um, given the different types of dementia? Yeah. So the different types of dementias, you have your, your common dementia of Alzheimer's. That's the most common form. And the primary symptom that is associated with Alzheimer's is is memory loss. Um, with the mental status, you're going to get episodic memory loss. You're going to see with their neuropsychiatry, it's typically normal. Um, so when you're looking at that, again, Alzheimer's is typically that memory loss is what you're primarily going to see first. When you're looking at um, frontotemporal dementia, that's that damage to those neurons in the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. And with that, you're going to see um, the first symptoms you're going to see are apathy, some poor judgment and insight, some speech and language issues, um, hyperorality, the mental status, you're going to see some frontal and executive language problems, um, and then some spares drawing. And then with neuropsychiatry, that's that um, apathy, the disinhibition, hyperorality, euphoria, and depression. And then when we're looking at um, Lewy body dementia, that's the second most common form of dementia. You're typically going to see with that the symptoms are some visual hallucinations, REM sleep disorders, um, some delirium, um, some Parkinsonism. With the mental status, you're going to find that there's going to be some drawing and frontal executive issues, spares memory, delirium. They're going to be prone to delirium. And then with the neuropsychiatry symptoms, I'm sorry, you'll see the visual hallucinations, depression, sleep disorders, and delusions. And then the um, when you're looking at vascular dementia, Vascular dementia, again, is, um, you know, you're going to have damage to the brain related to problems with blood flow to the brain, 
common causes are strokes. And the symptoms that you're typically going to see with vascular dementia are going to, um, they're often going to be sudden and variable, but not always. There's going to be um, symptoms of apathy at times, falls, vocal weakness related to their stroke. Um, mental status, you'll have the frontal and executive issues. Some cognitive slowing is going to be noted, and they can have some spare memory. And then under the neuropsychiatry issues, you're going to, again, see that apathy, those delusions, and that anxiety. When we're thinking about the patients and residents we may see across the post-acute long-term care um, um, continuum, can you speak to that prevalence? Like how common, we know Alzheimer's being the most common, Lloyd body, you just said it's the second most common, but how common is dementia overall? In the United States, uh, actually Alzheimer's affects like 6.5 million people that are age 65 and older. So it's it's fairly common. And additionally, when you look at like the World Health Organization, currently in 2023, they're identifying over 55 million people worldwide with dementia. So it's a common condition that is occurring. So within that that cohort, then how many people are uh, of those people with dementia are we anticipating will show um, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia? Yeah, and actually, um, the studies show that BPSD will affect up to 97% of people who are community dwelling that have dementia. And of those people, the most common symptoms that you're going to find are depression or apathy. I would imagine, and I know from just working in this space and having family members with dementia, how challenging it is. I can only imagine how hard it has become to not only keep people aging in their homes, but that transition to the nursing home. What do we need to do as far as in, in our thinking like of planning? How, what, what are the approaches that we can start taking maybe even early if the person is at home before they transition to a nursing facility? So, Tana, how do we... Um, start preparing and thinking about all those challenges we have with our patients and even before they come into a nursing facility, what do we need to do as we're looking at these behaviors? How do we prepare the, when they're in the home with the caregiver and as they're transitioning into our post-acute long-term care facilities? I think there's a couple factors that um, play into what you should look at from a provider standpoint. Um, there's also some factors that should be looked at from a caregiver standpoint. Um, one of those is identifying what behaviors, you know, the patient has already had, um, how the caregiver at home is coping with those behaviors, what education level they have on those behaviors, and making sure that they're really given the education needed to make that decision appropriately. Um, as a provider, if you're seeing a patient before they're going into a long-term care setting, a lot of families are trying to avoid the long-term care setting. Um, and when we see patients coming in, sometimes they're coming in a little later than they should have, um, which could potentially result in issues with their family regarding if there's agitation or aggression. So I think what we can do from a provider standpoint when we have contact with these patients outside of long-term care is to make sure that we're educating them on how the disease progresses, what these symptoms can look like, and 
you know, what support or resources there are to remain in the home, but also when it's appropriate to make that transition into long-term care. Thank you. And, you know, when we are in the long-term care setting, can we speak to those non-pharmacological interventions that we need to start with instead of just starting with a, a drug if we're seeing someone who has um, behavioral psychological symptoms. And I'll turn to Anthony for the non-pharmacological interventions. Well, there's definitely a number of things we can do. Um, you know, the first line of treatment, in, in my opinion, would be to determine if psychotherapy would be um, appropriate. It's de it's definitely been proven to be effective for people with at least mild dementia. Um, but as you tend to see more severe behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, um, when the disorder is more advanced, counseling um, kind of it no longer becomes as viable of, a, of an option. Um, in terms of other um, non-pharmacological interventions, uh, one thing that is really important to do is to focus on uh, sensory stimuli in these environments. Um, when you take sound, for example, you can walk into a long-term care facility and if you're hypersensitive to sound, you're going to hear a lot of different things going on at the same time. You might hear um, TVs and radios, whether they come from common areas or multiple patient rooms, staff communicating with each other and other residents, just loud conversations, um, music overhead or, or patient alarms coming off. Um, there's also lighting to be aware of. You know, it's it's much more comfortable to be in a calming incandescent room than in a room that's bright with like a flickering fluorescent um, above your head. So when you put all of these different sensory things together, it's very easily to get uh, it's very easy to get overwhelmed and, and uh, overstimulated. So it's really important to uh, focus on the different uh, sensory aspects that uh, occur in a long-term care facility um, to help sort of reduce the the likelihood that you might see some of these uh, behavioral or psychological issues come up uh, with dementia. Um, long-term care facilities are also encouraged to try and have some areas that are safe for residents to sort of navigate on their own or wander around, um, whether it's just an enclosed courtyard or uh, environments that are enhanced with, uh, you know, nature and plants um, can be a really good way of helping redirect patients who who need that, um, or just areas with reduced stimulation. You know, having a quiet room that's kind of away from the hustle and bustle of the facility, or maybe even one with soundproofing, uh, can be really helpful in terms of de-escalating someone who's particularly agitated. You know, there's a lot of different things we can talk about regarding non-pharmacological ways, um, interventions, and some of them involve how you interact with residents. Um, it's very easy when you're not attending to it, it's very easy to accidentally, um, trigger somebody and make a situation worse, even if we have good intentions. Um, if we want to increase our chances of, um, having success with somebody who's particularly agitated or, um, you know, have some sort of behavioral issues. We have to have a plan going in. We just can't wing it. Um, I, I've heard staff in in these facilities um, say really well-meaning things, but sometimes it it comes across uh, in a way that only makes situations worse. 
like uh, by saying to someone, it's time to get up, it's time to eat, as opposed to, you know, asking them if they want to get up and they want to eat. Um, I've seen people just start changing residents um, or getting them up out of bed without any communication. So it is very important that um, the the communication that we have with these residents is very clear, very concrete, and empathic. And when we do our, our education with some of the communities that we service, we focus a lot on the ways that they can improve some of the situations through communication, um, which I think is really important and a very simple task that can be implemented. Um, to help with patient behaviors. Tana, can you give us some examples of the communication, that, uh, more examples of the communication? Yes. When we talk with our communities, we, we focus on how communication and empathy can play a role in the, the way that a patient responds to, you know, the situation. So Dr. Nettleman mentioned getting someone up out of bed and, you know, without saying hey, I'm here to get you up out of bed. Um, and often as caregivers, I think that we are so focused on the fact that we have so much to do throughout the day um, that it's easy to forget why we're doing the things that we're doing and who we're doing them for. Um, so during our training and education, we do do some like role-playing examples with, um, you know, having a patient be getting ready to, um, go down to the dining area and showing if, you know, the caregiver comes in and says, Mr. Smith, time to leave your room. Let's go. Um, you know, and what that reaction might cause versus, hey, Mr. Smith, they have, you know, lunch down in the cafeteria today. I'm here to help you get down there. Um, it would be great if you would join um, and kind of what the different reactions um, could be from that resident. Sharice, uh, I feel like you probably have some other examples you could share, too. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the way we communicate with our residents in the community has a big impact on that, especially when we're talking about, you know, oftentimes our residents are also hard of hearing on top of everything else. So when you have a, a resident who might be confused and hard of hearing, what they heard you say might not actually be what you said, which causes increased confusion or agitation or fear. Um, I know I've had residents who, you know, the staff goes in to get them cleaned up and, and they're telling them that they're coming in to clean them up, but they didn't hear that. And instead of stopping and taking the time to make sure that it was clearly understood, they proceeded to start just cleaning them up. Well, that's, you know, causes a lot of concern for the patient when you're just starting to disrobe them. So I think taking that time to make sure that that communication is also clearly understood by the patient is an important factor to consider. So if we're asking our um, staff at our facilities, I, I love that you guys are talking, giving us some examples on communication. What if we have that that patient who's in pain? How would would they show up? Um, are there are there any signs of or ways that their symptoms are exacerbated because of um, pain or being uh, physically unwell? What what would we expect? I suspect that that would be a varied um, response from <clears throat> patient to patient. Um, 
you'll you'll likely have some people who are simply unable to articulate that they're in uh, in pain or that they can't really explain like where it is or how severe it is, what helps, what doesn't, you know, like you you might be limited in the information you get describing their pain. Um, but you might see some behavioral things that come up. Um, I suspect you'll see quite a bit more of agitation, maybe some uh, some vocal outbursts. Um, but it can be very challenging um, uh, with someone with uh, dementia to sort of pinpoint um, pinpoint the the issues that they're having. Um, so pain pain management, attending to pain management is very important. And we often um, talk about the dice model, which we can talk about in a minute. But I think that plays a big role in identifying the pain. Um, we see patients who, you know, maybe are more agitated, but you also might see that they grimace um, when you're doing something with them. Um, you'll see kind of some specific agitation when you're attending to a certain area where there's pain um, and they can't vocalize that it's hurting. Um, when we have patients who have like somatic um pain I don't even think I should call it that but um like if their you know stomach's hurting um if they have the flu or you know they have a cough and maybe their their ribs are hurting from that um they could be a little bit more agitated when we're doing patient care around those areas so I think you can see it in a lot of different ways but you also have to be paying attention um to what's different that could indicate that a patient is presenting with pain yeah, and on top of that, it, you know, not even just like the the grimacing and and actual like signs of pain. Sometimes people present their pain with being just being tearful, right? They may seem more depressed, and we're looking at them thinking that they're having symptoms of depression, when in actuality it could be a symptom of pain that they're not able to actually verbalize. And I think those are, those are all great. Um, examples and points that we need to consider. Uh, can I circle back to the DICE model? Um, can you explain more about what that is and um, why, why, how we should be utilizing it? Sure. The DICE model is pretty um, easy to understand. Uh, D is for describe. Uh, that's when you get all the details about what's going on, the who, what, when, and uh, why behaviors might be occurring. The I is for investigate, where uh, you start to do a little more digging into uh, the symptoms, um, any medication changes, uh, appetite changes, sleep changes, just try and get some more information. Um, create is when you develop a plan uh, to address the issue, and E is evaluate, where you see basically if what you did is working. And so again, when we're doing education, we we often give examples of that. Um, we have a, a few. We could go back to pain. So, you know, if you have a patient who is aggressive, agitated, um, anxious with hand with hands on physical care, um, maybe they'll be yelling out or groaning. Um, that's what you're describing. This is when it's occurring. Um, you look at investigating it. You find out the patient's non-communicative. They're hard of hearing. Uh, patients primarily only anxious and agitated with hands-on care. Maybe they're sleeping and eating well, and once the care is done, um, they will be left alone. Um, so you kind of come to a determination that you do feel like it could be pain-related, um, and you create a plan. So are we going to treat the pain um, prior to personal care due to the grunting, 
you know, nonverbal pain cues? Are we needing to order any evaluations to make sure there's not an injury that's causing the pain? Um, making sure that we're communicating as best as we can, given that the patient is very hard of hearing. Um, and, you know, using any other non-pharmacological innervations that we can do to make the experience better. I think one of the most important things, though, when you look at using the DICE model is evaluation. So, you know, you described, investigated, created this plan, but you have to go back and say, is this plan working? Um, did it resolve the issue? Did it result in less behaviors? Uh, are the staff following the plan um, and or do we need to adjust the plan? So if if I'm utilizing this plan in my nursing facility, how what what advice can you give me as either the medical director or the clinician on the floor, um, even the nursing staff? How do I implement this in a facility? Yeah, so I think it's going to be variable on like the level of implementation that you want to do. <laughs> um, if you wanted to put this in like a, you know, a company wide organizational implementation within like the nursing home and all the departments, a collaborative approach would be ideal, you know, um, involving everyone that's necessary in the patient's care to look through this, a quick, you know, brief meeting over the patient behaviors, which most communities are already having meetings, you know, if patients are having behaviors. Um, but yeah, sit down with the team, the, you know, the psychiatric provider, if there is one primary care and, you know, the ADON nursing staff do this exercise and then put the plan in motion with the rest of the staff that needs to be aware of it um, and then set up times when you can come back and evaluate it. I think if you're looking at it from also implementing it just as, hey, this is a very easy tool that you can use to think of how you can help reduce non-farm or how you can help reduce behaviors with non-pharmacological approaches is when you have a patient presenting with symptoms, think in this context and, you know, develop this process kind of internally before you escalate it to the person that you're going to escalate it to. So, you know, if you're a, a nursing aide um, and the patient's being agitated, think in this processing step um, when you're giving that information to the nurse or, you know, if you're the nurse giving it to the the provider who's caring for the patient um, so that they have the information that they need. From a provider standpoint, I would say I, I almost go backwards. Um, when, a pro when a problem's presented to me, I then start looking at this um, from the DICE model and asking the questions that we need to know to be able to figure out, like, do we have all the information we need regarding describing the incident? You know, do we have all the information we need about why this why this could potentially be occurring when it's occurring? And then when we develop our treatment plan, you know, we're creating that plan, but we're also educating the staff that's caring for the patient, um, the, you know, the team at the building on why this is our plan um, and what we're looking for the outcome to be of that plan. I think it's easy that... Um, to say that you could you could implement this, you know, at, from an organization standpoint and put it into care team meetings, but it's also very simple for any caregiver to use this when evaluating patient behaviors. And Tana, can you give us um, a real life case study? 
Yeah. So um, actually, interestingly enough, this is not mine, but I think it's a very powerful um, real life example of how, you know, what we're doing from a provider standpoint, a caregiver standpoint, um, and the way that we do things can really impact a patient and why knowing this information can be very valuable. Um, One of our corporate account manager. She's a nurse um, by trade. Uh, She always actually, she does a lot of our education. She always shares a story, but, um, you know, they had a patient in the nursing home when she was working as a nurse on the floor and the patient was very agitated, very aggressive, um, very distraught and in distress anytime they did you know, showers with this patient. Um, And they had care team meetings after care team meetings with the whole staff at the building um, to talk about what they could do to get, you know, the patient to be able to have a shower. Um, So after looking at this, um, you know, multiple times, they finally talked to the family. Um, Not that they hadn't talked to the family before, but for whatever reason, you know, this conversation led to this um, when talking about what they could do to help, you know, the patient. And her son shared that she was a concentration camp survivor um, and that she had actually had um, water logging done as part of that and had a traumatic history from it. Um, so basically, you know, we, the staff there un- unknowingly was re, you know, re-traumatizing this patient, um, by doing something that they couldn't really control. And if they didn't know that, um, they wouldn't really know to implement anything differently. Um, you know, they, there's some things that you can treat. Some things are harder, especially when you add dementia on top of um, trauma. Uh, I don't think they were ever able to really get her fully um, in the shower and and doing great with it. But they were able to adjust her care um, to where she could, you know, be bathed and be calm and and not re-experience that trauma um, moving forward. So. I think that's a really powerful intervention, and it also kind of leads into when you're assessing these behaviors, making sure you you have all the information you can, given if you have access to it. And sometimes it's hard if the the patient um, doesn't have the information for you, um, or maybe even the caregiver doesn't. But it's worth it to at least you know try to get that information, do screenings that could lead us to. Um, coming to a conclusion that there's something that we should consider um, during, you know, our evaluation of patient behaviors. Let me ask, when you are given the complexity of the case that you just presented, um, do you, are you documenting or should we be documenting maybe in our care plans, all of these triggers and the interventions that we know work for um, the, the, that patient? I think most definitely we should um, look at trauma-informed care. Um, you know, it's been a big thing moving forward in, in long-term care. And there's different kind of evaluations you can look at for patients that can um, give you guidance on if they're at risk for trauma or if you have a known trauma. Um, from a psychiatric standpoint, we are evaluating for trauma, you know, during our initial evaluation and and following up. I think sometimes the difficulty is that the information might not be readily available. Um, and especially with patients who have dementia, 
as the disease progresses, they they lose their voice and or their memories to be able to share that information with caregivers. So I think it's very vital to document that history that we're able to obtain um, those triggers and to make sure that it follows them, you know, throughout their treatment, rather if it's to the hospital, to a new facility um, or anywhere, because it's important for people taking care of them to understand that um, and to have a plan. I know the facilities that we work with are really great about having personalized care plans and looking through, um, you know, specific patient behaviors uh, with having a psychiatric team being involved in, you know, the overall care of of the patients and the mental health in the building, we do take an active role in, in helping to, you know, navigate what care plans we can put in place that might help um, go through those. Well, I, I thank you each for all of this um, wonderful information. And I know we are, this is just the beginning as we're going to talk more about crisis intervention, but to close us out for this session, any um, closing thoughts or pearls that you each would share um, with our group and our audience? But I would just say that I, I feel like, you know, dementia is a difficult disease process. Um, and I just feel like if we can encourage families and caregivers to communicate and and to try and help the patient communicate as best they can with what's going on, we can help reduce some behaviors and catch them early and hopefully prevent the escalation to a point to where we have to do any type of significant intervention. And I just I feel like communication across the board and collaboration across the board is the key to helping our residents and our families that are dealing with this type of disease process um, have a little bit of peace and comfort with it. Yeah, and I would add, I think it's just really important for caregivers to know that like their individual interventions and their individual education and what they bring to the patients, it can make a huge difference on that, um, on their behaviors. And it doesn't have to be like this huge, you know, process or, or thing that they have to do. Just simply, you know, knowing what they can try to do can help resolve a lot of these behaviors, you know, some of the time. And I, like you said, we're going to talk about when that doesn't work on the next uh, segment, but um, it can make a huge difference in a large majority of patients with, you know, these symptoms. I think also um, a lot of caregivers also <clears throat> experience some guilt because they might struggle to, uh, you know, care for a loved one and, and need them to go into a long-term care uh, community. Um, and, you know, caregiver burnout is, is very, uh, very real issue that caregivers experience when they're caring for people with dementia. So I'd also encourage that, uh, caregivers take some time, um, to sort of focus on their own, um, healing and being in a, in a, in a place where they can help someone else by, you know, helping themselves first. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Have a great day, everyone. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.